If you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to use one provided for you, there should be one in the back of the pew right there in front of you, the smaller dark brown books there. You'll find this on either page 791 or 832, depending on which printing of the pew Bible you have. The title of this morning's message is, The Truth is Always Good. The truth is always good. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that uh, telling the truth always means, or walking in the truth always means, that things are going to work out in a way that you think is good. Uh, Or especially that it'll work out that way in the short term, much less immediately. In fact, we could... We could just ask Andrew Brunson that, and he would probably tell us a man who walked in the truth and told the truth and yet was uh, falsely accused and even then had um, anonymous witnesses testify against him who then uh, reversed their testimony to his favor and yet he was still, in, in, uh, in being released, you probably read that, that the other side of that, he was actually convicted of, uh, of one of the charges. They released him on time served. I, I, I haven't asked him. I suspect he doesn't really care what his record is in Turkey. <laughs> and he's not especially concerned that that's going to show up on a background check. You know what I'm saying. Uh, but... But it doesn't always work out the way you and I would think it uh, is good. Uh, And and like I said, especially um, not immediately, but the truth is always good. And we see that walked out in the life of Paul, who himself in Acts 24, in fact, in, in prior to Acts 24, has been falsely accused, including by witnesses who don't even show up to the hearing. And yet he stands and walks in the truth because the truth is always good. That's the title of the message. The text is Acts 24, verses 1 through 27. So let's look there together now. And I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 1 of Acts 24, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, 
Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you as always for your word, that it is living and active and powerful, Lord, that it is able to pierce to the very innermost part of our being. And Lord, you know how much we, know, we need for your truth to do exactly that. Lord, you know every person in this room, every need and thought that we bring with us to this occasion and what it is that we need to hear. We marvel at the fact that you are able, even in a crowd this size, to speak in a way that ministers personally and individually to dozens and dozens of different people. But that's what we ask that you would do today. So we ask, Lord, that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. And Lord, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as an instrument to communicate as you wish. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Throughout my years serving as a, 
a leader in Christian ministry, there's probably one verse that I have quoted more often than any other that I've uh, used as a sort of a reference and a guide, a guideline for sort of operating in ministry. And it's Proverbs 10.9, or the first part of Proverbs 10.9, that says, He who walks in integrity walks securely. The implication is that integrity uh, compels us always to strive to do what is good and right and true. And then, whenever we fail to do what's good or right or true completely, integrity would compel us to acknowledge that and to try to make it right. So that when we do both of those, when we embrace that as a lifestyle, then when adversity comes and the wind blows, so to speak, against us, we know that we're on secure footing. If we walk in integrity, that we walk securely, come what may. And it's out of that conviction uh, that the statement that gives uh, the sermon its title comes. The truth is always good. For followers of Jesus Christ, our lives ought to be shaped by three commitments, I think, in essentially everything that we do. As followers of Jesus, our lives ought to be shaped by three commitments. Seek the truth, walk in the truth, and tell the truth. Seek the truth, walk in the truth, and tell the truth. And when I say seek the truth, I mean even in really practical ways about uh, making all kinds of decisions that what is, is this a good decision for me or my family or people that it impacts? What is true about that? What's the true answer to that? Seek the truth and then walk in the truth and then tell the truth. You'll find that when you walk in the truth, it's much easier then to tell the truth, isn't it? And conversely, for people who do not walk in the truth, they often cannot be counted on to tell the truth or at least are much less likely to do so. Well, Paul exemplifies this sort of lifestyle commitment and walking this out in our sermon text this morning. You may remember that when he went up to Jerusalem, he had been on three missionary journeys. At the end of his third journey, he came down to Jerusalem. He had been away for several years, and he went up to, to the uh, up the mountain to Jerusalem to um, to be present at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He was advised by James and the elders uh, because of things they had heard about Paul that he was teaching Gentiles to forsake the law of Moses and the customs of the Jews and that sort of thing. He was advised um, in a very careful and deliberate way to go up and demonstrate that he actually embraced all of that. And so he, he went up and purified himself, went to the temple and observed those purification rituals carefully. And meanwhile, he said nothing. Now, we've been studying through the book of Acts for a long time, and, and you know um, it is not Paul's habit to say nothing. <laughs> uh, everywhere Paul has gone, he has gone to preach, and everywhere he preaches, he upsets people. Um, it's really just by virtue of what it is that he's preaching, right? But it's, it seems that uh, mobs get stirred up, and he gets um, run out of town, even stoned, and, you know, 
plots formulated to kill him and all that kind of stuff. That's been, that is his normal pattern. Uh, not necessarily his fault, uh, but certainly the pattern. In this particular case, though, when he comes back to Jerusalem, he just goes up in a very humble and contrite way, purifies himself, and says nothing. He had walked on the side of truth so that at his trial, the truth was on his side. And he demonstrates in that that the truth is good in the shadow of false accusations and the truth is good even when it's unpopular. I want to take the text in those, under those headings and let's look first at the fact that the truth is good in the shadow of false accusations. We see the accusation unfold in verses 1 through 9 when it says, after five days, the high priest and Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Again, what had unfolded in Jerusalem, um, he went up to the temple expecting um, by his observance of those rituals, he would be well received. He was not at all well received. He was accosted, dragged out. They're ready to kill him. And he's actually taken into protective custody, essentially, by the Romans. He tries to speak sort of rationally, reasonably to the crowd. They're not a very reasonable crowd, he finds. And so he ends up going and, and speaking to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, which included the high priest and 70 others. Um, they're ready. They form a plot to kill him secretly. The tribune finds out about it and actually sends him away to Caesarea to the Roman governor. That's how we end up in chapter 24 here. And so that's what's referenced. The high priest, after five days later, they end up going to Caesarea. And they bring with them a spokesman, it says in the ESV, Tertullus. You, uh, if you've got the New American Standard NIV, you, yours probably says a, an attorney or a lawyer, right? So, so the Jewish leaders have lawyered up here. When they come before Felix, they've got a, a spokesman to make their case. Because, you know, if you're going to make false accusations, you want to be sure you make it in the right way, right? That's really what they've done. They're, they're, in other words, they're sort of outside. Of, they're, they're moving outside of their realm. They're used to judging themselves according to their own laws and customs as Jewish leaders. And here they are before the Roman court. They get a man who can say it right, so to speak. And you'll notice that he begins the accusation by just slathering on flattery. I don't know if that struck you when, when we're reading it. In verses 2 through 4, look at, look at all, like he did two verses, three verses, he says nothing. He says, since you, since through you, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. I mean, it's, it's actually it's customary to sort of uh, in, to open with a word of sort of deference. And as a matter of fact, we have our own ways of doing that in our court system, right? Where the, the judge walks in, you stand for the judge, address him as your honor and so forth. There's a certain amount of deference that is rightly uh, communicated to a judge. This is just laid on a little bit thick here, right? I mean, if somebody served you a sandwich with that much mayonnaise on it, you would send it back. <laughs> And just say, you know, it's a little more than I can stomach. 
And see, this is the first red flag because if you have to stroke someone's ego that much, you are probably seeking a favor, not justice. And if you're seeking justice, you probably can't count on getting it reliably from that kind of person. If you've got a leader or, or a judge, a, a major decision maker, and you've got to stroke your ego that much, uh, you're probably not seeking justice but a favor. And likewise, it may indicate that the accuser knows he's seeking a favor because justice is not on his side. I mean, you, get, you follow that? In other words, if here this, this, uh, this spokesman, this attorney probably knows that if justice is rendered, that doesn't come out in favor of his client. And so he wants to lay the flattery on pretty thick. So he starts with flattery and then he speaks in generalities. So if we looked back at verses 5 and 6, here's what we'd see. There are basically four charges brought against Paul. And they're this. He's a plague. He stirs up riots. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, you'll notice that two of the four are statements about what he is, essentially. We found this man to be a plague. He is a plague. He is a ringleader. The third, the second actually of the charges, but um, two of them are he is statements. One of them is, is very general. He stirs up riots generally. Right? There's no reference to any particular offense that way, but a, but a broadly generalized statement. And then the only thing that really approximates a specific charge is that he tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So we knew what he was up to. We stopped him before he could do it. Now again, here's the other red flag. When, when, when someone uh, makes statements about, when an accuser makes statements about what someone is, rather than what they did, that probably indicates the accuser has a weak case. It at least indicates they're make, making a weak case. <laughs> but it may be that their case is just uh, weak altogether. But actually, what, if, you, if, you, if you stop and think about it, and you pay attention a little bit, this is just wildly prevalent in our culture. This is the way we carry on discourse in 21st century America. It's all about he is statements, right? And we are moved by it, mobilized by it, upset by it, and all that kind of stuff. And so we hear all kinds of things, you know, She's a leftist, she's a liberal, she's a communist, he's a racist, he's, a, he's homophobic, transphobic, Islamophobic, every other kind of phobic, right? And, and, and for many, many people, that's all, that's all we need to hear. And we're forwarding it on, we're sharing it on Facebook or whatever. But see, so far, so far you've said nothing You've said nothing of substance when you just made some general statement about what someone is. 
it's an indication that there's a weak case, or at the very least, if some, any of those things may be true about the person. But you ought to insist on more information before you make a judgment about that or take any action in response. And that's one of the indications, not only is flattery, but the generalizations and he is statements that there's a, there's a weak case, and in this case, false accusations behind it. They may actually believe the accusations are true. If you'll notice, he says, uh, you know, if you examine him yourself, you'll find out that all these things are true. Now, I don't know if he's bluffing um, or just ignorant. Like, I, don't, I don't know what's the case there. We know as the readers, this is, these accusations are not true. Um, but somehow he says, if you examine, you'll find out. Well, he, he does examine. He gives Paul an opportunity to make a defense. And here's where the truth is spoken, right? The truth is always good. And as I said, in Paul's case, he has walked on the side of truth so that at his trial, the truth is on his side. In verses 10 through 21, and we're not going to read through all of that, but, but if we hit the highlights of here, here's basically what, how Paul approaches his defense. Verse 11, you can verify that I was at Jerusalem no more than 12 days. When this happened, Paul speaks, in other words, in terms of verifiable facts that the truth is actually on his side. Verse 12, he says, they did not find me disputing or stirring up anybody. There is, verse 13, no proof to support their charges. They cannot prove what they're saying, in other words. Verse 14, he says, but I do confess that I worship according to the way. What they call a sect, we call the way. That is how I worship. You know what? I believe essentially all the things they believe. I believe everything that's written in the law and the prophets. I believe as they believe that there's going to be the resurrection of the just and the unjust. He doesn't say this. The implication is, I just happen to believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. But I believe what they believe. But having said that, that's true. I confess. You see, he does it. he's not ashamed of it. He doesn't veil that in any way. I confess that's true. But then he goes on in verse 18 again to say, they found me in the temple purified. Now, what was the accusation? He tried to profane the temple. What he says is the evidence is exactly opposite. The evidence is exactly opposite of what they said. They found me in the temple purified, not profaning it. Walking in the truth and telling the truth, however, doesn't guarantee that you'll be exonerated. Because all of what Paul just said was true factually verifiable in response to false accusations and generalizations and yet what happens in the verses that follow is that he's kept in custody and we see the second point the first again being that the truth is good in the shadow of false accusations number two the truth is also good even when it is unpopular 
because Felix keeps Paul in custody under the guise that he is going to wait, uh, await, he's going to await an appearance by Lysias the Tribune. It says he allowed Paul some liberty, allowed his friends to come and go among him, attend to his needs and so forth. And then look at what it says in verses 24 and 25. It says, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So, so they want to hear about faith in Christ Jesus. And what does Paul talk about? Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. It says Felix was alarmed or frightened or afraid, depending on your translation. Now, now just on the surface, again, I don't know if, if, if this strikes you in any way, or sort of catches your attention. But right on the surface, this might sound a little off-putting to the average 21st century American that, that in, in the sort of a com, an evangelistic conversation and telling somebody about faith in Jesus, the highlights of the conversation are righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. In many circles, you would find those are topics we avoid in conversations that are evangelistic. We don't want to introduce that part of the package, right? I'll leave that in the fine print. And by the way, uh, you don't necessarily need to start the conversation there. You know, uh, this is an ongoing conversation which actually unfolds over a period of a couple of years. So you don't need to feel pressed that the, the, the person behind you in the line at the grocery store that you need to, to uh, tell her on the way out of the store about the coming judgment or whatever of Jesus. That doesn't have to be the way the conversation uh, starts, but for Paul, it's central to the conversation. And part of the reason for that uh, is actually below the surface, and that is understanding the relationship between Felix and, Drus and Drusilla, because this is, this is really more um, striking even than it sounds. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, Drusilla was the daughter of Jewish king um, Herod Agrippa, who was uh, given in marriage to a Syrian king. She had actually been betrothed to another Greek prince, uh, earlier, but as a young woman given in marriage to a Syrian king who agreed to become a Jew and even to be circumcised. Now that's quite a commitment to the relationship. Uh, and that's all I'll say about that. But he's serious about it, right? <laughs> like he's, he's in. And yet a short time later, Felix, this Felix, convinces her through deception and trickery in part to leave her husband and marry him, which she does through a bit of deception and trickery of her own. Now that is not exactly what you would call a holy matrimony, is it? Especially for this young Jewish princess 
Jewish royalty defying not only the law of God, but even just Jewish customs, leaving her husband to marry this Roman authority. So when Paul starts talking about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, well, that's alarming, isn't it? Now you understand why Felix says he was alarmed. He's getting kind of personal. Now just consider that for a moment. Because Paul had opportunity to take a different approach here. Right? I mean, if you're, if you're being held and you've got this conversation ongoing, you're being called periodically to meet with Felix. You know, Paul, he's just schmoozing with Felix there. He's got an opportunity to turn this in a direction that's a little bit more to his favor. He could have tried to put a spin on things that would kind of ingratiate him to Felix, you know, a little bit. That might cast himself in a more positive light, cast the Jews in a negative light. Obviously, he could have offered a bribe, since that's what verse 26 says Felix was wanting. Did you notice that? At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he called for him often. You know, Paul could have offered him a bribe, or even because he's got friends coming and going, you know, he could have said, you know, uh, it wouldn't, it just wouldn't look right. It wouldn't be good if, if I offered Felix a bribe, you know, and, and he knew that I, that I would give in like that or the word got out that, that I bribed him. But, you know, if one of y'all, you, one of y'all could probably just make this go away. You know? He could have at least been more tactful, couldn't he? I mean, like he could have just, I mean, he could have just told the truth, just not the whole truth. He could have just laid off the moral stuff, you know? Lay off the part about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. You know, send him that in a letter later after you've been set free, right? I mean, so in other words, he had opportunity and, and good reason to take a different approach here. when his freedom or captivity was at stake and he told the truth. He told the truth to power and in the face of unrighteousness and he would remain in custody for a full two years. And even after Felix was replaced by Festus, he remains in custody and, is in, and ends up being sent to Caesar, it, the story might have ended differently in that respect. Uh, but as far as we can tell, Paul never gave that any consideration because the truth is always good. Now, this is all relevant to us in, in, in a number of ways because we're actually conditioned more than we realize, I think, toward dishonesty in our culture. Um, even in even in ways uh, where and, and here's why I say that our culture values profit more than truth, right? I mean we're we're 
we're an economically prosperous country and our culture sort of runs on the fuel of money and prosperity. That's what we value. That's what we reward. And so that's what we pursue. And so there are ways even in which making the sale, closing the deal, getting the promotion, that, that we're more likely to be successful in those ways if we bend the truth, twist the truth, shade the truth a little bit, avoid some of the truth, veil the truth, paint the truth, look like something besides the truth, and actually become conditioned this way and might be unconscious of it. I remember uh, years ago in another uh, church and school, interacted with a, with a guy who, um, he was a, a salesman, that was his, his uh, vocation. Uh, he was probably uh, pretty good at it, but he, you know, he, he came one time wanting to, for, for the school, this Christian school, to start a, uh, a new program, basically an athletic program. Our, our kids were younger than other, other schools we would have competed against, and I was like, I, just don't, I think that's a little premature, um, you know, et cetera. Anyway, he says, that's okay, because, you know, I know four or five guys I can get together. We can kind of put this together and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah was not in my notes, by the way. I didn't write that in. But, but anyway, so, but this was kind of, hey, I got four or five guys. We can, we can put this together. Well, I, I found out uh, later there, were no, there weren't no, there were no four or five guys because he referenced those same four or five guys on another occasion and to other people. You know, I can put four or five guys together. That, all that meant was if you'll say yes to me now, uh, I'll keep this thing moving along. But the point was, he actually, as a salesperson, had just become good at getting people to say yes to the next step. Even if that required a little twist of the truth or a little insertion of something that wasn't at all true. And it's worth considering and sort of reflecting on in what ways does that become sort of second nature because it's part of the air that we breathe. You know, when you, when you live in a culture um, where those things are true, where prosperity is valued over truth and virtue, it's sort of like, you know, you, you stand out in the sun and you're going to get sunburn. Even when you don't feel like you're getting sunburned. You ever had that happen before? I didn't, I didn't even feel like it was hot out here. And look, I'm, I'm colored by it now. And if, you, if we are immersed in the culture that we live in, uh, it is very likely to color the way that we think and live. Even for people who think we're quite virtuous. We could, we could mention that all of this is much worse in the domain of politics and media, right? And public discourse. Where it, it, it would seem to me that there are very, very few politicians at the federal level um, who are interested in the truth. Except when the truth serves their interest. If a lie serves their interest better than the truth, a lie will do. 
and they'll be just fine if you also accept the lie and will repeat it for them to get other people to believe it just to support whatever it is um, that they need everybody to say yes on this next time around. Well, should we think that our leaders do not reflect the people who elected them? And see, the, the danger is for, for, for us just to become so resigned to that reality, to just concede that territory altogether, that essentially, we're, well, we got to choose one side or the other, and we're going to choose this side and all the lies that come with it, and empower them and authorize them and all that kind of thing. We get sucked into it and it becomes part of who we are and a part of even what we participate in propagating. And brothers and sisters, that ought not to be so. The truth is always good, even when it is costly. And you can, be, you can bet that in a culture that is becoming more and more depraved, more deteriorating, more and more decaying, more and more, that the truth will become more costly to stand on than it has been before. And yet, it will remain good, as it was not only for Andrew Brunson, but for Joseph in the Bible, falsely accused and imprisoned from the age of 18 to 30, I think, 12 years at a point in his life where 12 was a lot of years. And it can be costly, and yet it's good. And as I said before, um, if last week, if the church does not remain the voice of moral clarity in a culture that prizes profit over truth, if the church does not remain that voice, there will be no such voice. But we're called to be that presence of Jesus and the voice of truth, even as the darkness descends. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do um, thank you for uh, this reminder that the truth is always good. Lord, we, we know when compared to a situation like Paul's, who's facing the possibility of death, on one hand, and then imprisonment and continued imprisonment on another. Lord, that for him, the truth was especially costly. For us, by comparison, it really may cost us very little, and yet, probably in more ways than we're aware of, or more ways than we would want to admit, There are times when we do want to only tell part of the truth, veil the truth, bend the truth, to serve our own interests. Lord, would you show us that about ourselves and about the culture we're a part of? Enlighten our understanding, Lord, such that we are people who steadfastly Seek the truth and walk in the truth and tell the truth. And we trust, Lord, that you are honored by our obedience in that way, glorified by it, and that somehow 
even in the adversity that they that might bring that the church is edified by it we thank you and praise you in the name of jesus amen